You guys can be seated. So I was uh, I was at a at a wedding recently, and the whole thing was beautiful, obviously. Uh, and after the ceremony, you know, and after the cake, there were there were speeches, several speeches, like twelve speeches. Uh, and I will say they were all they were all very moving. As I you made me think, all these people had been to Toastmasters together. They did a very good job, uh, f- you know, a good mix of funny but also meaningful. And, uh, it wasn't the like, hey, you remember that time on Broadway? That was awesome. Like that was not these speeches. They were about times that this couple that had just been married, either individually or together, had taken the time to care for their friends, the members of their family. And some of those were more general, kind of more about the sterling character of these people. Some of those, some of the stories were a lot more specific. People were recalling these specific moments or interactions or even conflicts that had changed the lives of their friends. And it spoke volumes about this couple, that the ways that they had invested their lives in the people around them. And guys, I have to confess something to you. When I got in the car to drive home, uh, I, was, I was bitter. And not about the length of the speeches. Like I said, they were very engaging, <laughs> okay? What I said I actually said this to my wife when I got in the car. I said, well, that's great, but give it a few years. Wait till they've been married for a few years, and then they have kids. See how much time they have left over for relationships after that. That, like, came out of my mouth. And that's dark, isn't it? That, that what I was saying is that I believe that once life gets busy, that it's no longer possible to have deep, meaningful relationships. Does anybody else ever feel that way about life? Yeah. That you kind of can look back on like a golden era of your relationships, back when time was unlimited, and you compare it to now and you wonder, do I even have any friends anymore? Does anybody else ever think that? Okay, I'm not the only one who ever wonders if I have friends anymore. That's good, okay. Uh... And I will tell you, I, I had to repent this week of that bitterness and tell the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. And ask him, hey, would you uh, help me understand what's happening in my heart? Because I don't want to live like this. And the passage that we're in today was actually a tremendous help for me, kind of working through my own stuff this week. So I have a lot of notes We'll see what happens. It may be highly autobiographical. You never know. But uh, I think that, that what the Lord wants to speak to us today is about joy and the joy that comes from being in relationship. Uh, the context of the relationships that we have in our lives that bring us joy and also the cost of those relationships. Because if we're going if we're, if we're to be people who are people of joy, if we're going to be a congregation, it's a congregation that's filled with joy, it's going to have to happen in the context of relationships, Right? That's what we've been studying in Philippians these last several weeks. Honestly, I have been surprised as I've been preaching through the book how much Paul talks about relationships. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit, but in humility. What is it? Consider others better than yourselves, right? It's about 
It's all in the context of relationship. Christ humbling himself, we're called to practice that kind of humility in our relationships. Okay, so relationships are key to our joy. We're gonna be talking about those today, looking at the way that Paul talks about them, talking about the cost of those relationships and the context of those relationships. So that's where we're going. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Philippians 2. We're Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. That's where we're gonna be today. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. As I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that in the Lord, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God has showed mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may receive, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we confess this morning, Lord, that we are way worse at relationships than we think that we are. We're far more prideful than we admit and that we are often working at cross purposes with you and the intimacy that we crave. Lord, we pray that you would save us, Lord, that you would help us, and that you would show us this morning through your word uh, the joy that comes as we lose our own autonomy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we get into kind of talking about the cost and the context of relationships, I want to just spend a minute zooming out here and talking about this section of verses, 19 through 30. Uh, remember, we're, we're reading the letter of Philippians, right? And the letter of Philippians is this book in the New Testament that Paul has written. So there's this apostle, Paul, and he's written to his friends in the church in Philippi. And we believe that this letter, like the New Testament, we believe it's authoritative, that God is speaking clearly and authoritatively not only to the church then that the letter was sent to, but that he's speaking authoritatively to us through this text, right? Okay, so... In a lot of the passages that we've been in so far, the ways that we jump from what's in the letter into our own lives has been really clear or really obvious. So last week we talked about how Paul tells the Philippian church, hey, you shine like stars in the sky. Okay, so we make this jump and we say, well, that church shined, shone, shined like stars in the sky, right? Because they were in Christ. And so because of that, we know that that's true about us as the church. So then we talked about what does it mean for us to shine like that in the sky? Or Paul says, hey, don't complain. So he says to them, don't complain. So the message for us is, don't complain, right? It's pretty easy. It's kind of like a one-to-one -one correspondence. But what we have in this section is kind of, a, it's kind of a different chunk of text, right? What we have here is essentially Paul's explanation of his travel plans for himself and for his friends. Commentators call it a travelogue, just like an itinerary. 
So he's explaining to them, well, you know, I'm not going to send Timothy to you. I'm going to keep Timothy here with me, but I am going to send Epaphroditus to you. He should be coming to you soon, and you should celebrate him when he gets there. So the application is obviously that we should send Timothy. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite line up one-to-one. And so what we're trying to do with this text is to get behind it because we believe that God is speaking to us just as authoritatively here as he, as he is in any other place in Scripture. And I say all that to say just as, as, a, as an encouragement to you as you are reading Scripture on your own, that there are times where we come across pieces of Scripture where we think, is this really relevant to me? And I think it's important to admit that there are times where we have to work a little bit harder to understand how God might be speaking to us through a text, but, but it's worth it. And that's why we're not skipping this section, but we're kind of diving into it. So that's a little bit of an aside. But I think it's important that like what we're doing here is not just preaching through these passages as they come, but that we actually believe that God is forming us and the way that we think about Scripture. So that when you come to Scripture, not in this time, you kind of have the tools that you need to ask God, God, what do you have for me in the Word for yourself. So I think it's kind of important to give a little context for what we're doing. Okay, so uh, the cost of relationships. That's, that's where we're going to start. The cost of uh, relationships. Do so we think about the wedding speeches that I talked about, right? Y- y- I want people in my life to say those kinds of things about me. That people would say really kind things about me like they said about that, like that, uh, like that couple. And I actually want to have friends in my life that I can say those kinds of things about, that I would say, these friends of mine are really loyal. I want to celebrate them for you. We all have a desire for those kind of things. And Paul actually shows us he has friends like that too. This is what Paul says of his friend Timothy in verse 20. For I have no one like him. Think about that for a second. Paul is saying, "I I have no one in my life that is like Timothy is to me. And the English kind of doesn't quite capture it, but that word for, it's a word for like is how we translate it, but it really means of like, of like spirit. Paul is saying, I am like, I am so deeply connected to this man. I have nobody in my life who is like him. Do you long to have people say that about you? Or to have people in your life who you could say that about? Yeah. I have no one like him. Then he says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? Again, what a beautiful thing to say about someone. Paul says all these other people, they're all out seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But the implication is not Timothy. Timothy is genuinely concerned for the people around him, that he loves them with a love that is so genuine that it it makes him stand out from everyone else around him. Then Paul says this about his friend Epaphroditus. He calls Epaphroditus his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier, someone who has ministered to him in his need. And so we get this snapshot of of Paul's relationships with these men that he's living around and working around and ministering with, and we see that there's this assumption of a really kind of tight-knit community that's full of people who are supporting each other in their, like, everyday lives and as they do this work of trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in their day-to-day lives. David Brooks calls these kind of people, these kind of virtues, eulogy virtues. He says, it occurred to me that there were, this is kind of talking about at the end of our lives, when we get to our funeral, what do people say about us? What do we want people to say about us? He said, it occurred to me that there were two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. 
The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones you talk about at your, people talk about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, faithful, were you capable of deep love? All of those eulogy virtues, the things that we would desire to be said about us at our funeral, all take place in the context of relationship. And he goes on to say, we all know that eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones. But our culture and our educational system spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate inner light. Many of us are clear on how to build an external career, more clear on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. But the result of that, he says, is that we live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. David Brooks is saying we all desire depth in our relationship like Paul had in his relationships. But he's admitting that we struggle as a people to know how would we actually cultivate those kinds of relationships. And what Paul shows us here is that there's actually a cost to us if we're going to cultivate those kinds of relationships in our lives. There's a cost to us if we're going to cultivate those kinds of relationships in our lives. And the cost is that we have to be willing to give up our own autonomy. That we have, a, we have a way of living our lives that we talked about a few weeks, Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That our default position for living our lives is to, to live as me, to live as me. That's autonomy. And Paul says, no, I'm calling you into a different way of living here, that if you're going to be a person who experiences deep, meaningful joy in your relationships in your life, what you've got to be able to do, what you've got to be willing to do is to give up your autonomy. And it makes these kind of relationships really costly. And we know that because of the backstory of these people that we hear about in this letter with Paul. So Paul says that he, he he's talking about his friend Timothy, right? He has no one like Timothy. Paul and Timothy have been doing ministry together for decades. Because when Paul came to plant a church in Timothy's hometown, Timothy, uh, he signed up to, to, to turn his back on the life that he had been living and to throw everything in with Paul. And then... Paul circumcised Timothy. Talk about that cost as an adult person, right? Timothy has given up a lot to follow Paul. And he continues to follow him, right? He's, he's spent all this time ministering with Paul and said no to all of his own hopes and his own dreams to say yes to the ministry of the gospel in his life. That came at great cost to Timothy, this relationship. And then we've got Epaphroditus. So if you remember, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the book. Epa- the, so Paul planted the church in Philippi, right? And that church heard that Paul was in prison. And so they knew that when you were under house arrest, you were, you were obligated to meet your own needs, essentially, under house arrest. It could be a very expensive thing to pay for your own upkeep while you were in prison because you never knew how long it was going to last. So they said, well, we really love this man, and so we want to support him. So they, they took up a collection, got all this money together, and then they sent it, not by way of Venmo, but they sent it by way of Epaphroditus. So they had this guy who volunteered to carry this money to Paul. This was a 650-mile journey that this man would have made on foot and in, and in a boat, which was a very risky uh, thing for him to do. In fact, Paul says three times in these verses that Epaphroditus almost died on the journey to come and minister to Paul. And he wasn't just going to give Paul money, he was actually going to be a minister to Paul in his need. That's what Paul says when he calls him uh, a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow, a fellow soldier, and a minister to me in my need. 
that the Philippian church knew Paul didn't only need money, he actually needed someone to be with him while he was in prison. And so they sent their friend. And that was a great cost to Epaphroditus, right? Not only did it almost literally cost him his life, but think about all the things he had to put on hold in his life to go, uh, to make a strange journey into a strange place to encourage this brother. There's a cost to developing the kind of relationships that Paul is talking about here. And we're very aware of that in our own lives, aren't we? That if we're going to have any kind of depth in our relationships, that any kind of depth always requires us to pay a cost. And the cost that we pay often feels like death to ourselves, doesn't it? Maybe we're not risking our physical lives, but what, what, what we know is that when we're choosing to give our time to somebody, there's something else that we're choosing to not give our time to. So for me to choose to give you time or intention or care from my heart, I'm choosing to not give those things to somebody else or to something else. In Economics 100, you may remember this from, from your economics class, we call that opportunity cost, right? That the cost of an experience, the cost of a concert ticket, is not just the money you pay for the concert ticket. The cost of the concert ticket is also what you're choosing to do with that night and all of the other things that you're choosing to not do because you're going to the concert. There's an opportunity cost that comes along with the concert ticket. And that's true for all of our experiences in life. That every time that we choose to do one thing, there are all kinds of other things that we are choosing to not do. And we are painfully aware of all the things we're not choosing to do in our world today, aren't we? That's what FOMO is. Just being aware of all of the things that we're missing out on because we have chosen to do something else. And what, what economics coaches us to do is to always be thinking about the opportunity cost, to be constantly evaluating, is this really the best use of my time? Is this really gonna make me as happy as I wanna be? And so we, we've been taught and conditioned to think about all of our choices. Is, are these choices really gonna get me what I'm most looking for in my life? That's an autonomous way of thinking. There's always gonna be a point in our relationships and where, where we're gonna say, you know what, this other person is not worth the cost. Because what it's actually costing us is our very selves, our very lives. So now we're kinda in a pickle, right? We've got this thing that we really want, which is depth in our relationships, but we're also admitting this is something that's really hard for us to grasp. And it's actually something that we're kind of afraid to give ourselves to. So what do we do in that place? Think about what Jesus said in John 15, 13. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he who lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus says that in his speech to the disciples in the upper room. He's saying it right before the crucifixion because Jesus knows what he's walking into. Jesus is telling his disciples, his friends, I'm going to the cross for you because of how much I love you. There's no greater love than someone who would lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that for you. 
And so Epaphroditus can lay down his life for his friend Paul. Paul can lay down his life for the Philippians because they have been loved with a kind of soul-filling, life-changing, put-others-before-yourself kind of love that they've experienced through Christ. We said it two weeks ago when we talked about how Christ made himself nothing and went to the cross out of obedience and because of his great love. That he bore the price of your redemption because of his great affection for you. And that love is a transforming love. It's a love that fills us up. And it teaches us that love is something that's found only as it's given away. That our joy is increased only as we seek the joy of others. That the joy actually comes in our losing. It's because of the example of Christ that we know that and it's because of the power of Christ working in our lives that we actually have the strength to step into this fearful process of paying the cost of, of developing these deep, meaningful relationships. And I think what, what I have been wrestling with this week and what I would invite you to wrestle with is the fact that your life, your life as it currently exists, is perfectly calibrated to get you the results in your life that you are currently getting. What that means is that if you're looking at your life saying, man, I would like to experience a greater depth in my relationships. I need some connection in my life that I don't have. I'd like to experience more joy there. Then the question is to the Lord, Lord, what needs to change about my life? Because the reality is, is that we are all limited people. We're all operating within, our, with, within limits all the time. I had a friend explaining to me this, this way earlier this week, and I thought it was such a good metaphor. He said, I feel like I have all these cups on the table of my life, and they all are kind of for different roles in my life. I have a cup for work, and a cup as a husband, and a cup for my kids, and a cup as a friend. And then you, we could continue to add cups to that, right? Cups for my hobbies, and my roommates, and all, you name it. But I've only got one pitcher of water. And as I pour all the water that I pour into one of these things, I can't pour into something else. That's true, but we're just limited people. And so I think the, things, the thing that we have to wrestle with is that uh, there's a real cost to be paid to be in deep, meaningful relationship. And for that cost to be paid, it's going to have to come from somewhere. I think we have to be honest with ourselves that even for us to make those kind of choices, one of the first places that we need to spend some of that time is in remembering what it means that we have been given the overwhelming love of Christ that has filled us up. Because otherwise, what we're, what we're driving out of, what we're making those choices out of, is a sense of obligation. And that's not what Jesus calls us to at all. But that we would take the time to remember uh, the love that he has showered on us. And that from that, that that would then fill us up and lead us to ask the question, Lord, where are you calling me to spend my time? So that's the cost of relationships. And we're going to talk about the context of our relationships. And the context of our relationships matter, right? Like my freshman year in college, I became friends with the other people on my hall because they were the people right around me, and what I needed was friends right away, right? Here's the thing. I don't talk to any people from my freshman hall ever anymore. That's because we had zero things in common, except that we all needed friends, and we're incredibly lonely, okay? But as the year went on, as I got involved in other things, I met people who I actually shared common interests with. And so those interests then became the core of those relationships, the context of those relationships. And those relationships were stronger because of the things we had in common. 
Or like, have you ever invited someone from work over to your house, and on the day you're, they're supposed to come over to your house, you think, oh, what have I done? What are we going to talk about? Is it going to be weird? Yes. Very awkward. Certainly. Why? Because the whole context of your relationship is work. And that means that your relationship is personal, but only up to a point. And now, this person is going to be in your house, which is super personal. So the context of our relationship matters, and the commonalities that, we're, that our relationships are founded on matter, because those commonalities will determine the extent to which we're willing to engage in those relationships, right? Those commonalities will create boundaries on the relationship. So we had to look at, well, what did Paul have in common in these relationships? Look at me at verse 22. It says, but you know how Timoth- you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. The context for Paul and Timothy's relationship is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the soil in which their relationship has been nurtured and grown to the point where Paul can say about Timothy, I have no one like him. He's like a son to me. There are commentators who have wondered if Timothy was actually Paul's son because the word here is so strong. Timothy was not Paul's son. But, but the context of the gospel, the story of the gospel, opens us up to family in a totally new way. What Paul is saying when he calls Timothy his son or when he calls Epaphroditus his brother, he's not using like kind of gauzy Christian platitudes, you know? the family of God. It wasn't a, a meaningless platitude to Paul. He was, it became a platitude because Paul has it right here, right? He wasn't just greeting someone, oh, brother, good to see you. No, he was calling Epaphroditus his brother because of the connection that he felt with him. He was saying Timothy was like his son because of the connection that he had with Timothy. And they could have that connection because being a part of the family of God together had totally transformed their lives. Paul's expressing a bond that he had with these men because of their shared commitment to Christ and the mission of Christ not only out in the world but their commitment to Christ in each other's lives. Like I said, this context, it makes all the difference. And what we have to notice here too, and this is something that's important for us, especially within the church, is that this is not friendship just for the sake of friendship. This is not a mutual alliance against loneliness, which is the way we often conceptualize relationships, right? It's very powerful. Because loneliness, in, it creates a hunger in us, doesn't it? Hunger, I think, is the right word because it indicates the physical character of our desire to touch another human being. Wow, guys, I am reading, I just read that from a quote from somebody else. I'm gonna read you the whole quote, okay? I didn't say that. That was someone else who wrote that in my notes. Well, they didn't write it in my notes, but I wrote it from somebody else. Okay. Got to cite the sources. So here's the, here's the quote as a whole. Talking about uh, community for community's sake. This is by a guy, Stanley Horwas. He says, first, community for community's sake is not a good idea. He says, Sartre is, is right. Hell is other people. Community by itself cannot overwhelm the loneliness of our lives. I think we are a culture that produces extreme loneliness. Loneliness creates a hunger, and hunger is the right word, indicating as it does the physical character of the desire and the need to touch another human being. And such desperate loneliness is very dangerous. I can tell you from, now the quote is over, okay, just to be clear. 
Such desperate loneliness is very dangerous. And I can tell you from my own firsthand experience in trying to make my relationships a mutual alliance against loneliness uh, that it's dangerous. Those relationships are inherently unstable and destructive. They're codependent. They're cannibalistic. They eat each other. We eat each other alive when that's what we're trying to get from each other because another person is never going to be able to make you not feel alone. And so Paul is giving us something different here. He's giving us the context of the gospel. The good news that the, that the kingdom of God has broken into our world, that God, in seeing all the ways that sin has broken us and warped us, that we hate ourselves and hate others, that he didn't give us what we deserve, he didn't leave us in that place, but he came to us through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And that Christ came not to dispense judgment, but to serve and to save us from the coming, coming judgment by giving himself that he displayed for us the self-giving love of God and he saved us through the self-giving love of God. And that because of that, that as we step into that love, that we've been drafted into a mission. That that grace is so great that it consumes the entirety of our lives, that it's a love that demands all of us. And because of the nature of that love, of Christ's love for us, it gives us a new context for all of our relationships. It makes us brothers and sisters to each other. It makes us fellow workers and fellow soldiers. And as we talk about often here, this mission is not just about the kingdom of God advancing out in our world, it's about the kingdom of God advancing in each other as well. And so the call then to acknowledge the gospel context of our relationships is a call for us to be committed to each other and to the kingdom work out in the world as we are transforming our world is transformed into the image of Christ. That that's the context of our relationships. So what does that mean for our relationships? It means that there's something more important in our relationships than whether or not we agree on vaccines or whether or not uh, people are wearing masks in this room or not. That there will be some people who come to church with us who are masked, some who are unmasked. And it's so tempting to go home, isn't it, and then write stories about, about people depending on what you see on their face, what they're wearing or not wearing. I mean, I think one of the things this passage reminds us as we lean into this season of kind of coming back together and figuring out what this looks like is that we're united by something that's bigger than those things. It doesn't mean that they're not important. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them. Absolutely, we should do those things. But that we have those conversations under the umbrella of remembering that we are united by something. The context for our relationships is something that's greater than those issues. And because our relationships with each other flow from our connection to Christ, it means that we are invited then to acknowledge that in our relationships with each other. That our connections are about more than just having people to play dominoes with on Friday night, right? Now, I love dominoes, okay? I love playing games. Those things are good things. The things that we do with our friends to enjoy them and to have fun are fun and are good. But the reminder that our, our relationships are in the context of the gospel reminds us that there's something more than that for us too. That if all we ever did was get together for game nights, that we would be missing something. And that's because our need in our lives is, is, is far greater than that. 
that we live in a world that's hard and a world that is always pulling us away from the truth of the gospel, a world that's always fighting to make us forget how much we are loved by God. And that what we need in our lives is brothers and sisters who will know us and who will say, who will remind us what is most true about us. And people can't remind you what is true about you if they don't know where you're struggling. And so the question I want to leave you with today is the question, who, who gets to hear your help? Who gets to hear your cry for help? Who, who do you give the gift of hearing you say help to? What we know about Paul, guys, is Paul knew that he needed Timothy in his life. This is what he says in verse 23. He says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. What Paul is telling the Philippians is, I'm not sending Timothy to you right now. A lot of commentators think that this part of the of the of this section is Paul explaining to the Philippians why he is not giving them what they asked for, which was to send them Timothy. And Paul says, I'm not going to send you Timothy because I need Timothy here with me because I have a need to have someone with me who's going to be reminding me what is true about me in the gospel as I await finding out whether I'm going to live or die. So this Paul, this man who says this, you know, these beautiful, bold statements to live as Christ and to die as gain says, I need someone to help remind me who I am. And that person for Paul is Timothy. Do you know where you need help? It's hard to tell other people where you need help if you don't know where you need help. I think that's one of the first invitations for us. That we would ask God, God, would you make me aware of where I am crying out for help in my life? And then when he shows us that, that we would ask, Father, who are you asking me to share that with? And if you're married here, I'm going to tell you, it cannot just be your spouse. Your spouse cannot be the only person who hears your help. That's a huge, that's an important place, but God has, God has created us for more than that. He's called us into other relationships also. And so we would ask our Father, Father, where, where are you calling me to share my help? And what I want you to hear there is that this isn't an overwhelming call for you to transform your life to just always be spending all of your time with other people. That's not what we're talking about here. But that you would be intentional, that we would be intentional, that I would be intentional in asking the Lord, Lord, who are you asking me to invite into the places of my need in my life? Whose cry for help, whose cries for help have you heard? That's another question. And how is God asking you to step into those places with those friends? This guy, Stanley Howerwitz, that we talked about earlier, I'm going to read you another quote from him. He says, My hunch is that you don't just make a community up. You discover that you need one because you're in danger. And we need to figure out how to reclaim the disciplines that are necessary for building a communal life in a manner that indicates that we are people who need help. We need to pray to God to help us because we are not quite sure anymore where we are. We're not quite sure what the dangers are. We need all the help we can get from one another and we need God in order to know how to be accountable to one another. I think the, 
the invitation in our passage today is that we would that we would start being on that journey with each other. That we need all the help we can get from one another and we need God in order to know how to be accountable to one another. That we would let him lead us on this journey of understanding the cost of giving our lives to another, one to another, the context of what it means to do that with the gospel around us and in us. And that in that, that we would find the joy of experiencing Christ as we go on that journey together. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you care about uh, us and our joy, Father, and even our relationships. We're grateful um, that you pay the ultimate cost to come and be with us, Lord, to assure us that we are never alone. And we ask, Lord, that as we sit and even meditate on that love uh, through, these, through these songs that we're about to sing, Lord, that you would be showing us our need for you and the way that you've designed this community to, uh, to help us help each other experience you in those places. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.